It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Alice Shattuck is absolutely giddy. <laughs> this is true. Because we are thrilled uh, to bring on Spencer Clavin. You know him. He's associate editor at the Claremont Institute, features editor at the American Mind, the host of the Young Heretics show. And uh, most of all, and the reason that we're talking to him today is he is the author of How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Spencer, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted. I'm I'm giddy as well. I'm very excited. <laughs> <to see that. laughs> um, so, you know, I want to start off by asking Tom a question, actually, which is an unconventional way to start an interview. Right. But, <laughs> oh, that's great. I feel why? like I've been doing interviews all day. I'm ready to just why sit back. I, you why did I write How to Save the West, Alice? I'm ready to tell you. Yeah, don't mind me. <laughs> um, um, but, Tom, what was the last book you actually read? The last one I actually read? Yes. In full. Like cover to cover, in full. Um, my goodness, uh, something by Ann Coulter in like 2002, maybe. And before that? Um, something in fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, so, and the reason I asked that is because, Spencer, you wrote this amazing book that it quotes like everybody, I think, in Western civilization from like the church fathers <laughs> to C.S. Lewis. That's actually an exhaustive to, quotation like, list from I all mean, people. It's wild. It's really incredible. And, and, you know, you're giving all this wisdom that you've gleaned from reading all these great works of Western civilization, you know, in the hope, because we really need them at this moment of crisis in our, in our culture right now. Um, so I wonder, you know, how do we get somebody like Tom, my husband, who's not a big reader? Like, how do you even start? Because is this an, is this an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> because you know so so our next reading project the next book i'm going to read aloud to tom and bed i think is going to be how to save the west but you know after that where do we go like how do we start do i go like straight to plato or do we are there baby steps here <laughs> well i was not informed in advance that i was going to be invited to make an intervention into a marital dispute <laughs> i feel like uh, this was is, I. Uh, I'm, being, I'm feeling a little hot under the collar here uh but actually i think uh tom not to like use you as a stand-in for the audience but i think this is totally relatable um and a lot of people that i talk to ask me something like this because the world is going insane. I mean, we know this. The, everything around us is so um, feels so disastrous, so freighted with uh, with with fear and terror. And you know, the news is very interesting. Social media is very interesting. It's hard to get time to sit down and read a book. Um, it's also intimidating sometimes for some people to read the stuff that I talk about in this book. Uh, it, it, this this is why I wrote the book the way that I wrote it. Um, it's a perfect reason for the structure and the uh, length as well of the book. Um, you know, we we were kidding around about 
quoting every thinker ever, but uh, something this book is actually not is like a doorstopper survey. Like, here's this guy, and then this guy, and then this guy. Um, this is uh, the the pitch for this is this is voices from the past that have something to say to mm. the present. Um, you know, these are people that you when you meet them, you know, if you give me five pages to introduce them to you, um, you'll find out that the that you need them around. Uh, you need them around to make sense of these things that kind of fly by our news cycle, these things that uh, feel like they're totally unprecedented problems that we feel like nobody's ever dealt with. Um, what I'm arguing in the book is that actually these fundamental questions we're up against have been around forever. And there have been great minds that thought and wrestled with them questions like, what's my place in the world? Um, what's, you know, my relationship to God and the cosmos? What's a human being? Um, we all care about these pro problems whether we know it or not. And the people that we are talking about here, guys like Plato and Socrates, uh, Aristotle, uh, the scripture and, uh, you know, the, the, the church fathers, um, these aren't like there to for eggheads like me. They're not there to furnish material for PhD theses. They're there for us to uh, encounter what it means to be human and how to be excellent at being human. Um, you, I think you'll like it. I think when you actually dip your toe in it, um, this is something that you can you can start to take ownership over mm -hmm. and it becomes less of a chore and uh, more of a friend. One of the things that I that I pulled from the book that that was Reassuring was a theory or a thought, I guess, um, that you talk about saying the world, is, the whole world is a copy, a reproduction. So yeah. does that mean that this, what we have now, has been resolved previously? Or did this, what we have now, end up in total disaster and it's going to again? Well, it's funny how now you hear people kind of musing about, oh, is the world a computer simulation? Is the world uh, like an alien dream that we're having? Um, and this idea keeps coming up again and again. And I think it's because we do have an intuition about something that I think what you're referring to is this this idea that I bring up from Plato's Timaeus, uh, which is a dialogue that comes right after the public. It's nice and short. Uh, somebody on Twitter said, I'm now that I've read your book, I'm going to go read Plato's Timaeus and help my job here is done. That would be a great <laughs> first one to start with, um, because this is a, a dialogue based entirely on the idea of mimesis, um, which is a Greek word meaning imitation or replication is where we get our word meme. You know, you see this stuff. Once you start seeing this stuff, you realize it's everywhere. Um, and the idea is basically there is one God, the Demiurge, who created all of the cosmos and everything in it is a reproduction, is an imitation of him. It's as close to him as possible. And therefore, we kind of enter into this relationship of replication with one another. We enter into a kind of, um, we reflect the world back at itself as a way of putting it. This is what we do when we make art, for instance. We have an experience and then we try to make a mimesis of it, to reproduce it, to reflect it. Um does that mean that everything that happens has happened before and it's all gone wrong? Um, I kind of address that at the end of the book, the crisis of the regime. And the answer is no. I mean, nothing is written in the stars until it happens. Uh, there would be no point in talking about this stuff if we didn't feel like we had some agency in the world. I really believe we do. Um, and I think that these templates that we use to understand, you know, how stuff has gone down in the past, um, these are our templates. They're not prescriptions. They're not like, you know, oh, we look a lot. We do look a lot right now, like Rome at the end of, of her republic. There's no getting around that. Um, but all that tells us is that we are flirting with disaster. It doesn't tell us that disaster is inevitable. Um, and that's, you know, despair is a sin for exactly this reason. It's because if you really believe that there's no hope, um, what are you going to do? You curse God and die, essentially. I mean, this is not uh, actually um, it's it's not the most uh, inviting way of looking at the world. And it's also not the truest way of looking at the world. It's based on a false uh, claim to knowledge. We actually don't know what's going to happen in the future. And that's good news and bad news because I literally mean we don't know. Like I, we, we don't know if it's going to be good. We don't know if it's going to be bad. We know we have a job to do and that's carrying this tradition forward. The book is called How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. He is Spencer Clavin. Spencer, you talk about transhumanism in the book and certainly when you look at how we're seeding parts of ourselves to technology today, it certainly seems like it's in play, but is, is that something that's not brand new? 
Uh, right. This is a great example of something that at, at first glance seems completely new. Uh, it seems like it's never been done before. It's never been proposed before. It's never been possible before. You know, the tech is new. So uh, at that much, at that level, at least, it's uh, unprecedented. But the thing about it is when you scratch the surface, uh, you realize that underneath the ideologies underneath the transgenderism, the transhumanism, there is a very, very ancient, um, you might even say perennial, eternal problem, uh, or uh, I call it a crisis, uh, you could call it an anxiety, um, which is why do we have to have bodies? Why do we have to die? Um, materialists tell us that all we are is our bodies and everything else is kind of an accident or an illusion. Our neurons just happen to produce consciousness. But uh, we all know that's not true because our consciousness is the most important thing about us, how we access everything uh, that matters. We ask how we access uh, truth, love, desire, memory, dreams, all these things that um, without which the there'd be no point in talking about any of it at all. So the question of the materialist is exactly backwards. It's not why the hell do we need to have a, a mind or a soul. It's why the hell do we need to have a body? Um, bodies are a pain, man. They uh, they break down, they die, they are uh, incredibly burdensome in a lot of ways. Um, and this, according to the Christian account, is because the world has fallen. Uh, we're not meant to die, but, but we do. And so there's all these uh, struggles that we face. Um, it As long as there has been philosophy, I'm pretty sure there has been this impulse that the solution to the problem is you aren't your body. Your body is a, an accident. It's a burden. Um, your whole task as a human being is to ascend into a pure state, into something that leaves the body behind or just uses the body as a kind of appendage, uh, a robot. You hear talk now about like skeleton uh, mech uh, bone suit piloting uh, meat armor, you know, mm -hmm. um, you get all this stuff. Um, but this is all uh, again, it's, it's very ancient and it, it famously does not work it's like one of the great bad ideas of, of history something that uh, always leaves us up ends us up uh, sicker and sadder than we started and what I'm arguing in the book is there is a reason for that um, and the reason is that our bodies aren't a mistake what they are is the language of our souls they are the kind of raw material which uh, God has used which we use to express and to discover everything about us that is more than matter the term for this in philosophy is hylomorphism comes from greek words it means uh form in matter that the stuff that we're made out of isn't just stuff it's threaded through with spirit with form um what that means is your body is not a mistake and your mind your soul is not an illusion uh the body is the language of the soul it's also the vessel uh not for nothing but it's the vessel that god himself chose for walking the earth in uh so you don't want to discard it and you'll be happier if you think of it that way you will uh, actually have the benefit of an ennobling vision of the self but yeah it's uh transgenderism is new in a certain sense but the problem is very very old and so are the solutions yeah and it's so interesting that um we went down this path kind of because your book is set up as five separate crises um crisis of reality of body of meaning religion and regime but in a way, they're kind of all the same crisis. <laughs> they're like all yes, one Yes, confusion. I'm so glad you picked this up. Totally. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting. I forget which section you even said it in, but you brought up the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how like it's split into all these different multiverses and that like voids the whole thing of any meaning. The fact that like anybody can come back at any time is it, the fact that everybody's kind of immortal in this weird way just sucks all the meaning out of the universe. And there's this thread of Christian thought that <clears throat> believes that um that that people die were given mortality um in genesis because you can't repent if if you're immortal that you know satan can't mm. repent that that the key to being able to turn towards god and essentially to have meaning and purpose is is this mortality that we have and in a way like all of this Western thought, like a lot of it goes back to this, this fact that people die, right? And, yeah, and that's what yeah. gives us a lot of our meaning. And that's exactly the thing that we like most try and avoid in modern civilization. Mm -hmm. mm, wow. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you said that they're all one crisis because they absolutely are. Um, they're, they're laid out in the way that they're laid out because I think that's the kind of logical progression mm -hmm. that you have to take. If you, if you're starting from nothing, I'm assuming you're starting from scratch in this book. So no prior reading necessary. Um, and like, 
if you're starting from nothing, the first thing you have to deal with is, is there such a thing as truth, right? That's the crisis of reality. Mm -hmm. But um, these do, each of these kind of leads on to the next, and each one throws you back up against this wall, which is, uh, is there something or is there nothing, basically? Or is there is there truth or is there uh, kind of just a, a howling chaos, a wasteland of despair? And that's the problem of God. It really all does boil down to the problem of God, which is another eternal problem. Is there a God? Can we believe in a God? Um, and so you're right to bring up uh, scriptures. I think the Hebrew scriptures are full of stuff which sounds like a punishment, but is actually a mercy. Um, and this is one of death is one of them. Death is like, you know, um, it's kind of related to the moment in Genesis where the uh, builders are building the Tower of Babel. And God says, let us confuse their endeavors or else nothing that they conceive will be impossible for them. It sound, that sounds like a punishment. That's that's grace. I mean, because if you actually were able to build the Tower of Babel, to build the world state, which is what mm -hmm. that is, um, you would not like the results. You would be the victim of your own success because all of our endeavors are, are kind of materialist and anti-God in some fundamental way, right. according to that Genesis idea. Um, so another one of these is like, God doesn't let Moses see his face. Nobody gets to see him. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, that seems very miserable. Uh, that seems tra tragic, in fact, yeah. because God is our home. Um, but what God actually says, he doesn't say, you can't see me because I'm you know, like, you suck and I'm, I'm too good for mm -hmm. you. He he says, you can't see me because no man may look on me and live. Uh, nobody right. can behold this truth and 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 not mm -hmm. die. And St. Paul picks this up when he says, we shall see face to face. You know, our eyes will behold God, um, we, but we're not ready yet. Just like children aren't ready to hear certain things until they grow older. Mm -hmm. We're not ready to hear uh, or experience certain things. Uh, death is a kind of uh, it's it's a guardrail in some ways. It's a limitation um, because if we had eternal life, but we also had sin, which is what we get from Eden, um, we we well we wouldn't like the consequences it wouldn't right. it wouldn't be pretty so yeah i think you're absolutely right this stuff is there um to give meaning to our lives which is so crucial right and it's so interesting because right now and you also reference this in the book we're kind of at a point in our civilization when a lot of people are rejecting all of this wisdom whole cloth like saying we don't need all this mm. garbage it's just a bunch of old white men like forget all of it we're gonna go read gender yeah. queer instead of this and like who mm. needs that stuff <laughs> anyway and it's like no. i mean do you think there's like a malicious motive behind this it's hard to not ascribe some kind of malice to people who just want to throw all this out I know it's the evil or stupid question, right? And it's always important to remember that this is not uh, mutually exclusive. Like you can be evil and stupid at the same time. And um, so when we talk about our elites, uh, I, I know a lot of people say, well, is this intentional? Uh, is this intentional malice or is this just sort of incompetence, arrogance, ignorance? Um, and I actually think these things breed one another. Ignorance breeds malice. Malice breeds ignorance. Um, and, and so what I describe in the book is this narrative which has taken shape uh, at least since the 70s, but really earlier than that, um, that, as you say, these texts, this wisdom is uh, fundamentally flawed. It's not just wrong in certain particulars, but it's at root, it's wrong. Uh, the 1619 Project America is racist in its DNA, right? And so all of it has to go. All of it has to be overturned. Um, there are Marxist roots to this. There is a, a kind of a Marxist mm -hmm. uh, critical lens that's that's applied here. But I think at an even more fundamental level, um, it's a perfectly designed narrative because it's designed to keep you from figuring out how wrong it is. You can only sustain these opinions about the great texts if you never crack the spine of one. And so the whole point is to sell you on the arrogance of thinking, I don't need this stuff. I don't need to feel small in the face of the great minds of the past. Um, I can simply write it off. And I never have to uh, challenge my my assumptions about this. Um, there is, of course, an inherent contradiction in all of this. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's what makes the thing tragic rather than merely farcical. And, and, and that is, you know. The accusation always goes something like, well, you uh, the founders held slaves, right? They, they were um, they were slavers and that's evil. Now, slavery is evil. Being a, a slaver is wrong. Um, how do we know that? What gives us the moral ground to stand on to say uh, mankind is free, absolutely born free, created in, in the image of God and endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights? 
it's the Western tradition. That stuff doesn't fall out of the sky. We don't just believe that. We're not born thinking that way. Um, and in fact, if you study history, you will discover that most people throughout most of time have not felt this way about stuff. They didn't think that all men were created equal. These ideas had to be hammered and chiseled uh, painfully out of the mind of man. They had to be defended. Uh, people had to die for them. And if we ignore them, if we throw them out because, oh, they weren't perfectly embodied at the moment of their genesis. They, when they came into the world, they didn't instantly apply everywhere and always. Well, it's like, of course not. I mean, nobody lives up to these ideals now. That's the point of an ideal. You know, you don't, you fall short of it. I fall short of it. The guys that are making these attacks certainly fall short of it. So it's like compared to what, right, is always the question that you have to ask. And I, I ask this mm -hmm. to people all the time when they give me this stuff. It's like compared to what is this tradition lacking and wanting? What's your alternative? Oh, it's identity politics. It's paganism. It's tribalism. Like that's what you've got to offer. Um, I'm sorry, but there's just more. We've got better resources than they have. And that's the point of the book in some sense is to offer them. Well, yeah, it's so important that you say that, too, because I think there's like a huge lack of understanding of how much of what we consider just sort of like basic morality is a result of this civilization that like created everything we know and we just don't know yeah. we're in it because we're like fish swimming in water and like we have i don't think people realize how much comes from that and that like if you just cut it all away how much else goes with it like i use the yeah. example of people all the time because they're like I'm like, oh, you talk about like infanticide or like assisted suicide mm. and all these things. And, you know, like ancient people routinely left out babies to die all the time. And like only in Rome, yep. it was like a big topic of conversation. They were like, these Jews and Christians, they for some reason, they don't leave babies out to die. It's so <laughs> yeah, weird. They keep all their disabled babies like those weirdos. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like the Stoics, um, you know, are kind of proto-Christians in this way and that they have this uh, idea of, you know, the universal worth of man, but they were oddballs. They were weirdos, odd men out. And they were, that's one reason why early Christianity has such an affinity for Stoicism as compared with some of the other ancient philosophies. Um, you know, the Spartans were throwing babies off of cliffs. Plutarch talks about this mm -hmm. uh, in the life of Lycurgus. You know, they examine babies, they see if they're uh, worthy. And um, there's a, a sort of a forgotten part of that passage that I think is worth highlighting. The reason why the Spartans have to be so uh, selective about their young um, is because the state apportions every person a tract of land. It's because they are uh, effectively socialist in this regard <laughs> mm. that they can only permit certain babies to live. Um, and this is a bare observation about the tight connection between uh, state run economies and genocide. Why does this stuff come up again and again? That's why it's because this is a pagan idea. This is like an idea that kind of uh, just it, it comes naturally to man unless right. he has the guidance of the stuff that we're talking about here. In the part of the book that is a crisis of religion, science has not eliminated man's religious impulse, but rather misdirected it and wrongly dismissed the profound philosophical plausibility of Judeo-Christian revelation. Well, if if we've got a generation of lost souls now who are, you know... There are churches and synagogues and mosques and everything else peppered throughout every community. Why didn't why isn't this generation running towards spiritual centers instead running towards, you know, getting nose rings and screaming at uh, Spencer Clavin when he goes to speak at a college? Why didn't yeah. they why didn't they run towards that the salvation in these buildings that have been standing forever? Uh yeah, this is a really delicate subject for two reasons. One, um it, when you say, as I believe, that there's no way out of this God question, then immediately you sound like you're like, I want to convert everybody. I'm shoving religion down people's throats. I mean, this is like the classic accusation. But on the other end, uh, you do have to address the question is like, uh, have have all these churches just been doing evangelism wrong? Like, mm. it's not for lack of trying, as you say, that's for sure. Um and, you know, I think we are seeing hopeful movements in uh, the Christian and Jewish faiths in, in pockets of places. But I do think there's something we're missing on this. Um, and that is, in some sense, how basic the questions are that we're dealing with. Um, I belong to a particular church. I think it would be great if everybody tomorrow uh, were part of that church. That would be a positive good in the world. Same. I would, I would I mean. be really happy. <laughs> 
Yeah, right. Exactly. I would be really happy if everybody uh, believed every word of the Nicene Creed. That would like I think that would be a net positive all around. But that's not the conversation that we're having. And oftentimes we leap into evangelism um, at that stage without going through the many preliminary steps, without recognizing how bereft people are, how basic the issues that they're up against are. Um, and so that's why the religion section in the book is very minimalist in this in this sense. It's just about, you know, recognizing, surrendering to the fact that you're already worshiping and asking the first question, which is what's worthy of worship. That's the question that I think the church should be asking all the time to, to people, um, you know, because it's not working out well the way that things are currently going. It's not a recipe for happiness. Mm. Um, and the church does have better resources, but you got to go one step at a time. It's interesting because I, I, I just it. it it doesn't. It's not as if. Well, actually, I I, I take it back. <laughs> I was going to say it's not as if <laughs> people are getting lost in sex and drugs and debauchery because I guess they still are. Yeah, but, they yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, they are. But there's other stuff too. There's despair. There's emptiness. Yes. Right. There's like sexlessness as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned right at the beginning that there's that history gives us a template for uh, these mm. times we're in, but not a prescription to fix them. Are you? Um, are you scared? Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That this is going hmm. sideways? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, what I meant by it, history doesn't give us a prescription is uh, I meant that uh, it doesn't tell us what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I do think history offers some good guidance for what we what we should do. But yeah, of course, I get I get scared. I don't know if you guys are watching The Last of Us, but there's that great scene where uh, the girl is with this young boy and he says, aren't you scared? And she says, don't I look scared? And he says, no. And she says, I'm scared all the time of everything. Right. Huh. Like that's what uh, courage is, is premised on on fear. Right. You have to be afraid in order to even show courage. As uh, John Wayne, I think, is the one that said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's got that now. It's hard not to uh, that that sense that things might be going south. Um, but here's the thing, you know, I mentioned that despair is a sin. I also think despair is based on a lie. And the way I know that is because I understand myself as an inheritor, not just of of the of American citizenship, but of the Western tradition, which is a tradition that has withstood the rise and fall of civilizations because it is a tradition of seeking absolute truth and absolute truth belongs to God. And because I believe God is real, I have a leg up in this respect. We have an advantage here, which is there is a God. He does love us. Um, and in fact, uh, we're dealing on his timescale, not ours. You know, you think about somebody like Marcus Cicero, who uh, lives and writes at the end of the Roman Republic, which if any time is looks like looks disturbingly like ours it's this period at the end of the republic cicero has to retreat from public life he starts talking about writing a republic in letters because we can't have one in fact we have to write this theory about the republic and why it's good even though it's going away um and in the immediate term cicero is an abject failure he uh does not preserve the republic uh it's over the new regime is coming cicero is one of its first victims in that sense of course he fails in the longer sense, fast forward to 1770 and enter one uh, curmudgeonly John Adams, who from his boyhood has poured over the speeches of none other than Marcus Cicero. Just reading these orations over and over again, 
what does he do? He gets up and gives the great speech in defense of our Declaration of Independence, setting this country on the road to its genesis. When you're dealing with that kind of a tradition, with that kind of a time scale, you have no room to despair. You have a job to do, and that's to carry the light because you don't know what future generations are going to pick it up. All you know is the effort will not be wasted. That's such a great point to kind of wrap up on because it 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 really brings it back to like what do you do with all this you know what i mean which is Mm -hmm. kind of where i started with like tom like how do you get tom to read this stuff like you know and maybe like probably still a lot of people won't i don't think a lot of medieval peasants read this stuff either right but but we're we have all this and we're in it now like swimming in this soup of all this stuff and like we do kind of have a job to do with it, which is to to preserve it and to carry it on and to bring it as much as we can to other people around us so they have it too and to make it part of the culture. Um, and, you know, I, I so appreciate that you're doing this with like your podcast and, and this book and, you know, getting more people into this universe. Um, so, you know, Definitely, everyone, go out and buy this book. Um, How to Save Spencer. the West, Ancient uh, Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Spencer, as well as a guy who lived mm-hmm. in uh, Connecticut for a while, unfortunately to a lot of our audience, he spent it at Yale, but don't hold against it. It didn't, it didn't get, it didn't take. He's good. Uh, I'm still a swamp creature to some extent, but uh, maybe it's worth mentioning that the book is available on Audible as well. If folks are listening to this podcast, they like to listen to mm-hmm. things, maybe. Um, I read the book, the audiobook myself, um, so you can check it out in in that way as well. And yeah, I really uh, I hope people enjoy it because I believe in it and I think uh, you can benefit from it. Well, it's inspiring and we appreciate your time so much, Spencer Clavin. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Likewise. All right, Alice, we will. um, uh, How did that that go for you, Alice? I loved it. Yeah, I know. He's very smart and so are you. He is very smart. I'm not that smart, but um, I I appreciate that he's very smart. Um, And, you know, and the book is good. I mean it that I want to read it aloud to you because it's it's really engaging and interesting and and makes so much of this stuff accessible, which I love. Um, So definitely all of you should go out and get it, too. It's fantastic. Um, Spencer's great. He has that podcast, too, The Young Heretics, that I like. Um, And, yeah, that... um, that is like one of the great pleasure interviews that I've had because I've liked him for a really long time and I think he's great. Yeah. And um, so we'll um, I'll run that tomorrow as well on WTIC so people can, can listen. That's great. So um, the, the one thing I did want to hit was briefly Joe Biden had a press conference today where mm-hmm. he essentially they essentially said that the Chinese balloon, we're not quite sure. We think it went off course. It was going to spy on us in Guam. This is what the New York Times is reporting, reporting. Mm-hmm. And then they suggested that uh, the Biden got up there and in it, just ridiculously today did not take questions. Um, mm-hmm. He took started to. They were yelling, yelling at him, but he got ticked off. It was a he said the rest of the balloons were probably hobbyist balloons or something like this. So yeah. it was a, there was a not. We There's have, already one group we, that's we have, claiming they might. Yes. It might be. We theirs. have less information yeah. now than we did before. So this is how the press conference ended. This was a press conference where he it was a press briefing, but he should have taken a bunch of questions because there's no questions being answered. This is how it ended. I expect to be speaking with President Xi, and I hope we have we are going to get to the bottom of this. But I make no apologies for taking down that balloon. Thank you very much. Sir, there's been criticism. There's been criticism that this was. There's been criticism that this. Sir, Mr. President, Mr. President, there has been criticism. Mr. President, there has been criticism that this was an overreaction that was done because of political pressure. You cut my off and ask the question. We have more polite people. Mr. President, why have you chosen Poland for your trip to mark anniversary of the war? And what's your message? What? When I'm speaking to President Xi, Mr. President. So if you if you heard this feed live like I did mm-hmm. today, it actually went on a little bit more in the press. Um, the communications people um, lambasted the press, yeah, for asking those questions. 
But now, I mean, that is it's just a ridiculous thing that we've got no, we've got no, you know, real facts. They still don't know. So, like, why did we shoot down stuff that's not? Why do we shoot down somebody's balloon? Are we allowed to do that now? We can now hunt down all the balloons. <laughs> I mean, well, that's the question, right? Like, either these are dangerous things that we're putting everybody at risk, and they took decisive important action, or they're not. They're just like hobbyist balloons that were floating around. So you, you know, because. They can't say the first one because a it's starting to look like it doesn't seem like it's true, but also because then you start to ask the question: Why are these uh, enemy balloons or aliens or whatever floating all over our airspace? Which they can't answer because it turns out maybe they're just random balloons that people have been throwing up there, and you know they're shooting them down to look like they're doing something because of the spy balloon crisis, and they got in trouble for that. So now this is where we are. Yeah, what a mess. What else do you want to talk about? Did you have something else you want to talk about? Um, are, you still, are you still just briefly? Tingling? I wanted to. I'm very excited, obviously, but um, briefly, I wanted to touch on the Fetterman thing okay. because that to me is just like so sad. Like I don't even want to do a victory lap over it because it's so awful. If you I don't do know, a victory lap. He's depressed. I mean, yeah, but my point, like. Like we told you so, but we thought we he had a stroke. I mean, well, so- yeah, I mean, there's that too. But so basically, Senator Fetterman's press office put out the following: um, Last night, Senator John Fetterman checked himself into Walter Reed National Military Medical Center to receive treatment for clinical depression. While John has experienced depression off and on throughout his life, it only became severe in recent weeks. On Monday, he was evaluated by Dr. Brian P. Monahan, the attending physician of the United States Congress, and he recommended inpatient care at Walter Reed. John agreed and is receiving treatment on a voluntary basis. After examining John, the doctors at Walter Reed told us John is getting the care he needs and will soon be back to himself. Um, It's sad because I think what I'm sure has contributed to his depression is the fact that major news outlets are writing big articles about how he doesn't seem physically and mentally capable right now in his stroke recovery of doing the job of a United States senator and that he should have been given time to recover instead of forced into this farce of a campaign that he was forced into by everyone around him and hiding the true extent of his condition and his medical needs and now he's stuck in this position where he has people relying on him to be a senator and i mean it what an awful awful situation i don't know who wouldn't be depressed well i don't know if he has depression historically you know maybe it's not anything to do with the stroke I don't. I, I. I have no idea. I mean, it starts. And his wife's out here tweeting. I'm so proud of him for asking for help and getting the care he needs. Like you did this, lady. Yeah. <laughs> like you pushed this lie. You dragged him around, pretending that he was fine for months while he was not fine, and forced him into this situation. Like what a terrible, what a lunatic she is. Yes. I like the whole thing just makes me feel so sad and uncomfortable and awful and like I. I don't know at what point Giselle Fetterman and the other people responsible for this decide to let it go and like let him recover and do what he clearly needs to do, which is not being a United States senator right now. But I, well, yeah, and, like, but what also, a horrific thing for everybody. There's full complicity uh, in the media too because they gave it a good leaving loan if they oh, wanted to. Kara Swisher saying, "Oh, he was fine. I talked to him. He was if, great." If, if Oz had had a stroke. Uh, you know, 10 months ago, they would have been all over that. Oh, they were all over Herschel Walker for supposedly saying he had CTE because they didn't right. like how he talked or whatever. Right. Um, but yeah. it. Hey, can I ask you something? Mm-hmm. What is it that you like about talking to Spencer? Um, He's wicked sharp. No, I know, you know that. He no, knows I, stuff. I know that. But it's no, no, interesting. But, 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 yeah, I know. I'm just interested because you're really looking forward to this interview. And you did a great job. Thank you. you did a great job, even with that blindside attack, <laughs> which is ballsy of you, Alice. You never know how people are going to react to you know surprises. Um, but um, but look, what is it about the things he talks about that you like? What is that's it? all stuff that I like. That's stuff well, what, I listen what's to stuff podcasts. That you like? All that stuff. I don't know. Like all. Ancient I, maybe history we should read the book together. Ancient history, and religion. yeah, and philosophy, re- out, like, philosophy, religion. Mm. All this stuff, like the questions of human existence, like why are we? What are we? What's the point of us? And how do we do it good? Hmm. 
you know, people have been thinking about that for a long time. And they're important questions if you care about, for example, not being depressed or whatever, you know, or not or having a functional society and all of this stuff. It, it's, and like I say, they're not questions that or like he said at the beginning of the interview, everybody cares about these questions, whether they know that they do or not. Right. The desire for truth and meaning is so universal and like and it, and that gets at the heart of what's going on when we talk about deaths of despair, when we talk about young people like not having sex, not hooking up, not trying to start families, people having fewer kids, people doing drugs, people homelessness, like all these crises, mass shootings, whatever you want to point to. A lot of it goes back to like a civilizational culture crisis, right? And a crisis of meaning for people. Those aren't things that people do who have meaning to their existence and, and purpose and are thinking about what it means to be a human being, right? So, so everyone's grappling with those questions. And when people turn towards despair, like bad things happen, right? Or the opposite, when people turn towards deciding they have all the answers and secret knowledge and they know everything and, and they can force us to a better future through the, the power of their ideas, right? Like it, both, both of those extremes lead to destruction, right? Did you want to hit the Don Lemon thing or no? He's oh, yeah, a, we can hit apologized. Don Lemon briefly. I've been talking about it all day. Yeah, he sent his apology. Too little, too late. Who even says that? Do you have the audio handy so you can play it so for, people know what we're talking about? So times. anyway, so Don Lemon's on TV today. As we talked about yesterday, there I was is. also Ready? annoyed by this Nikki Haley rhetoric. Let me set it up one sec. About okay. talking about, like, the politicians out of the past and blah, blah, blah. And, like, their past, their prime. And, like, saying... I mean, she is a lot younger than those politicians, but I yes. was saying like her ideas are all old, stale ideas. Right. So like, what's the point? But Don Lemon took a different approach to this. This whole talk about age makes me uncomfortable. I think that I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and Maybe 40s. What do you that's talk? Not Wait. I, that's not Maybe. according to me. Prime for what? <laughs> Maybe 40s. Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll. If you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't necessarily. 40s. It. Oh, I got another. I'm not saying decade. I agree with that. So I think she has to be careful about saying that well, you know politicians aren't in their I think prime. You need to qualify. Are you talking about prime for like child bearing, or are you talking about? It's all the same. The facts are Google it. Everybody at home. When Don't is a shoot woman the in messenger. her prime? It says 20s, Don't 30s, and 40s. And I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime. And we, they need to He's be in their not, prime when they serve. I love, too, that he had to Google when to are women in their prime. Google? Google or whatever it is. <laughs> By the way, he, he's not the messenger. He is the, no, that's he's a, the a, accuser. <laughs> yeah, that's not um, like just a fact that you're no. just relaying. That's a, When are women in their prime is an opinion. No, uh, matter, no matter what ages you pick. Uh, yes. No, Unless I, you're talking about like prime ages to give birth to babies. But, like, when are women best able to serve as president at what age is a bit of an opinion. Don Lemon right. says 20s and 30s. Maybe, maybe 40s. Maybe. <laughs> but I love the idea of him having to Google because he's not sure when women are in their prime. He's also, because he is a gay man, mm -hmm. he does not have, it seems to me, he does not have a straight man's sensibility in danger sense <laughs> when be sitting between two women that you've said something. Do not tell them that they're past their prime. <laughs> right. He doesn't seem to be armed with that. And I think most men who, uh, who are straight men probably would say, okay. Get better There's this always this in. thing that like men age better than women mm -hmm. like looks wise. Um, and I think a lot of that is tied to our evolutionary desires because we want to have children and mm -hmm. women have children better, younger, and men, it doesn't matter quite so much. Um, which might also be the reason that he had to go out and Google when women are at their prime, because he's not sure. Um, but but also, like, but it is an interesting thing to say. And I mean, you could say, like, it's so interesting that he threw women in there, too, because what she was saying had nothing to do with women necessarily. And oh, yeah, like, that's a great point. Like, she says, like, our politicians are past their prime. And he's like, no, you're past your prime. Women's prime is done by their 40s. Over. Like, all done. I mean, 
that's such it's so weird that he like went straight to woman like joe yeah. biden can keep serving as president until yeah, he's 80 he's, no problem i believe he's 56 <laughs> well the, but men it's different no there's no prime it's all prime <laughs> yeah men are at their prime anytime joe biden's still at his prime <sighs> women though psh, that expiration date just com- it's coming for you sucks to be you ladies <laughs> what a terrible thing to say like i say he did apo- he said it was inartful I he like didn't the- apologize like to Nikki Haley or anything and saying like sorry that I said you're past your prime what a rude thing let me tell you one thing this is what he said he said the reference I made to a woman's prime this morning was inartful and irrelevant as colleagues and loved ones have pointed out and I regret it a woman's age doesn't define her either personally or professionally I have countless women in my life who prove that every day I would say not enough women in your life (laughs) clearly um they're um yeah, no, it's, you know, although, you know, if he, if he was going to, if he promises to do that like once every day, that show will be a hit. <laughs> oh, people will tune Absolutely. right in. Absolutely. That's like what The View is, basically. People say outrageous I things like so, every third is, day. His is really like, it, that's not something that he's supposed to be saying. He's supposed to be a good progressive. Well, you get like Whoopi saying the Holocaust wasn't racist or like, I mean. Right. You know, if you're looking for people to say like crazy things on TV, there's plenty of that out there. But yeah, it does grab the viewers. That's what it is. Right? Okay. Um, is there anything we should do now? Oh, I think we should get to um, a certain hotline that we have, the Chelsea Fire Wicked Hotline, in fact, which is brought to us by Chelsea Fire Wicked Hot Sauce, a great hot sauce that does not make you sacrifice heat for flavor. You get both in one great hot sauce. It's also seasoned with sea salt, so it has lowered sodium, and it's great if you're on a clean diet like the Awaken 180 Weight Loss Program has you following. So, um, you know, you're... Really, it fits all your needs. They also donate 5% of the proceeds to the Fallen Firefighters Foundation. So all around a great hot sauce. Get it at Market Basket. Get it at Big Y. Get it at ChelseaFireHotSauce.com. It's funny. I had a, a Awaken uh, Spot Alive read today. And, you know, mm-hmm. how it goes is like like he'll tell me, you know, you've got to Awaken in, a, in 60 seconds or whatever. That means when the spot's done that's playing, then there'll be, you know, dead air and it's time for me to start speaking. But my mind wandered today. <laughs> and And... Um, and he played a spot, and then, and then it, it was dead blank. air. And then I was thinking, oh man, I feel bad for my producer Roland because he's pro- <laughs> he probably left Stop. the studio and doesn't realize there's no more spots left. And now we have dead air, and like I feel bad for him because he probably doesn't know, and he could get in trouble now if there's just dead air playing. And eventually, as I'm thinking about this, like, did he go to the bathroom? Did he go to the production studio and just forget and not load enough spots? Because now there's dead air. And he said, Tom, 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 come on, come on, come on. And I said, oh. And he said, awaken. I said, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but it's so interesting how quickly my mind went from, oh, that poor dude. I feel bad for him. What a screw up to. to oh, it's my fault. Oh, I see. <laughs> I see. I'm not saying anything that I'm supposed to be. That's fun, though. So uh, yesterday, Tom, you, on the show, you said uh, Alice had a big, raging hard on for Nikki Haley. Um, good thing I wasn't drinking anything because I would have squirted it out of uh, my nose. Yeah, unbelievable. Did, did I use that term? Yeah. Did I really? Yes, that's what you said. <laughs> it's an odd thing to say. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Let's double up on the therapist, Alice. See, maybe, maybe this is clearer than we thought. Tom, I'm glad to hear that the happy pills are working so well. Thank but you, Tim. just think of all the manhole covers, vacant lots, and empty buildings that are now lonely that they're not having a discussion with you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right about that. That is that is absolutely true. It's funny. I dropped my daughter off in Newburyport today for a events that she has and and the, the place where i drop them off is one of my crying zones <laughs> um but that is right tim the things are working great still reeling though reeling tom shattuck attacked and alice shattuck attacked we by mike mitnansky oh i didn't really notice oh you haven't even noticed oh my goodness <sighs> said that we craved attention like attention craving whores to be uh talked about on the kms show can you believe that that madness. <laughs> I mean, like a very astute observation, actually. <laughs> I got to say, I just got to say it. Um, Sarah Palin is a gilf. She's, she is just fantastic. Correct. My gosh. Correct. Like a fine wine. 
correct. Hell, I bet even Stephen Mer- Merrimack will agree with me. Jesus, when's she going to get her OF or a Fansly account? Jeez Louise. At least do a, a scene with Blacked. My goodness. Scene with Blacked. Mm. I think he said Blacked. Fine. What's Blacked? I'm going to leave it to your imagination. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Steve from Merrimack. Hi, Steve. Just a quick comment. Uh, Nikki Haley. Yeah. Uh, Nikki Haley is a lipless wonder. Ooh. As a man, if my life depended on kissing Nikki Haley... I would refrain. I would go into that great beyond because, <laughs> oh, she's terrible. Oh, and if you've ever seen those that. choppers, oh, my God, she looks like a barracuda. Oh, my no God. No Sarah Palin. I, uh, I'm shallow. I know. But I don't <laughs> care. Thank you. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to objectify women like that. I don't have it in me. I'm I don't not, think Nikki Haley's unattractive, but I'm not really attracted to women, so it's hard for me to judge. Um yeah, I, I, <laughs> I I'm not from Merrimack, so I don't speak from the gutter like that. But um, yeah, it's not. It's not. I'm sorry, Nikki Haley. Attacked from all corners today, from Don Lemon, from Tom Shattuck, Stephen Merrimack, Mike Manansky. <laughs> I don't know that he attacked Nikki Haley. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Um, if you want to join us on Patreon for the live stream where you can live chat, you can do that at patreon.com slash We also always put some extra content there. You can always find the show for free, though, at burnbarrelpodcast.com and all the places you like to listen to podcasts. You can find the videos on YouTube or on Rumble. Um, and you can find us on social media at burnbarrelpod on Twitter, facebook.com slash burnbarrelpodcast. Email us burnbarrelpodcast at gmail.com. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.